Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheppy. And I'm doing today. This is an awesome day. It is indeed. Hope you guys are enjoying your day. And um, thank you for sharing your Sunday with us. Donnie, were you going to do a shout out? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I, I want to shout out Stephanie, but I can't see everybody not showing me. But I just want to say hello to just to definitely to Stephanie. I'm so excited about this show today. You know, we're 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 talking about my favorite book. So <laughs> I'm just so excited about this show. <laughs> so what book are we doing today? We are doing our very first book club show, and this is The House of Bondage, um, with by Octavia Victoria Rogers Albert. Now when we talk about this book, we, we actually brought this up to you guys um, at our the beginning of our season opener uh, of the season four, episode one. And we wanted to introduce a book club to you guys because we wanted to start introducing people to different books that helped us along the way when it came to research and helping us move forward and what it was we wanted to look for. And one of the things that Brian realized when he reread the book was the genealogical gems that was within this book and how it helped him. Now, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm going to tell you right now, I didn't necessarily have to reread the book. There were names that just kind of popped out on me that stuck with me um, because the book is fire. And I don't know who's read it. Even if you share with you today, I'm telling you right now, if you haven't read it, you're going to pick it up. You're going to read it because it's an awesome book. What'd you say, Brian? Although I'm going to say, I hope that most of the really, we, we want this to be a discussion. So for you to put your comment it, what you took away from it, yes, um, all of that kind of a thing. And I guess when I read it, there was there were certain names that that popped out. Um, like there was a, Ra a Rachel Lee um, who came from Virginia and uh, Jane, that was it, Jane Lee. And if she came from anywhere like Prince William County, Virginia or Appomattox or kind of that part of Virginia, the chances are that she could possibly be a relation on my dad's side. But what I took away from it the second, this last time that I read it was full scenarios. There are all kinds of potential brick walls um, that we can, you know, anyone who researches will, will hopefully recognize, you know, for us to kind of have a conversation about, you know, how would, how would you tackle those brick walls how would you recognize them in your research? You know, in fact, just to, to really kind of consider in that. So basically this, this discussion between us and you is gonna be based on a couple of themes. So things like, you know, we're gonna open the top of the show with genealogical issues that, that Don and I kind of dis discovered. Have my social impact, things like the slave patrols, slave punishments, um, people living in the woods because that was preferable, more preferable to them sleeping 
interacting with snakes than being enslaved. Uh, well, things like religion, psychology, uh, language, education, there is a lot in this book, um, which is why as painful as it has been for me to read um, three or four times, um, it, it is genuinely an invaluable book. And I'm sure Donnie will be honest with you. Um, when I read this the first time, as I will be, when I read this book the first time, I had to put it down three or four times and just walk away. Because what I read just kind of really did my head in. It was really horrific. And it really upset me to think that you know, this, these kind of things happened. But before- Donnie did that once. Yeah, no, three times for me. Um, and we'll probably go over those each and every time. But before we get even get into the genealogical issues, you know, just to remind ourselves that Octavia herself, the author of the book, was born into slavery, born at the very end of slavery. She was like a, a baby when it ended. But she would have grown up hearing stories that, that her parents would have shared with her because her parents had been enslaved. Um, so there was right. that kind of whole journey for her. And what's really interesting is this work wasn't published as a book the first time around. Just like Charles, Charles Dickens, a lot of his books began life as, they're called serials. They were published in newspapers and the, the public really loved them. So a publisher was found and they just put all of those serial kind of um, articles together in the form of a book. So I believe this was, this started in 18, what was the year that this was first published? 1889. It was, it? it was published in, in 1890, actually. The yeah. book itself was published in 1890, um, mm -hmm. but she started writing it, I believe, um, around eight, between 1875-ish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she started writing it, and it was it was the it was individual stories that were put in newspapers. And one question that I asked you, Tanya, that I thought the audience might really interesting to, to hear us discuss is we know that there are historical deniers out there. They know that they accuse people of us as revising history. So what would be your response to someone saying, well, these stories never happen. This is just a work of fiction. How can you prove that any of this actually happened? Are you asking me? I'm asking you. And I'm also asking the audience that, but considering we've read this book so many times, just because we know that there are people out there, you know, specifically in this country, in, in America, who, you know, who would just want to dismiss this book entirely and just say that it's a work of fiction, that none of these stories ever happen. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I don't think it's, I mean, because of the, the uh, God, she she draw she tells the they tell the future in this book. I mean, and I I think I mean that they they literally tell the future of African Americans in this book. But that doesn't make it. That doesn't make it true. No, it it doesn't make it true. But you can't you can't talk about things the way that they talk about like the alcohol mm -hmm. you can't you can't give the 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 talk that conversation that they had about whiskey and the way that they did think and the way that that whole conversation about whiskey that aunt charlotte and and alberta had about whiskey 
and then our Charlotte talk about how whiskey was going to be the death of her people if something wasn't done about it. And then look at us today, and it's a it's it's a it's a liquor store on every corner right now. Like it, it's it's just amazing to me. I mean, I I don't know, Brian. I don't know how to answer that question. How can you prove this to be true? I don't know how to answer that question. It's just to me, is I don't know. Because I mean, it's not like it's not like. Sorry, because I'm getting some feedback on my end. It's not like any of this would have been documented in a court case. I mean, these cases of abuse wouldn't have been documented because enslavers could do whatever they wanted to do to, the, to their people. And we, we will come back to that. For me, what makes it's the authenticity. Each one of these people that she was having a conversation with, and I want to get away from the word interview. I, I don't get a sense that she interviewed them. I get a no, it was conversations. It was a conversation that they were having and everyone speaks in their own unique voice. And I mean, I know a talented writer can do it. Dickens has done, you know, writers in memorial have done it, but it's the nuances, it's the word choice for each and every person. It's the cadence of how each and every one of these individuals spoke was like a thing, was like a fingerprint. It was, Charlotte speaks in a completely different way than Uncle, Uncle Joe speaks or C old Cephas speaks or the colonel speaks. Everyone speaks in a completely different, in a, in a slightly different way. Um, and the depths of, even though it, you know, we said it before we went live, that it really frustrated us that plantations weren't named, that the enslavers' full names weren't given, that those, that those kind of verifiable points weren't provided. Right. In a way, it didn't really need that. And I think I partially answered that question for myself, saying the time that they lived in. I mean, this was like the depths of, you know, the, the Black codes were coming in, Jim Crow was coming in. The, the children of these enslavers would have very much been alive. Are you going to really call out the evil, you know, the, the person that you had very bad feelings towards? And you were telling how badly that they treated you and the other enslaved people. Right. You live in Louisiana. Are you really going to start calling out your former enslavers saying, yeah, they did this, they did this to me and, and to other people? Because you knew what the reprisals were going to be. Right. You know, uh, the colonel talks about the Ku Klux Klan and what they, what they were doing to people. Right. So for me, the lack of that kind of information doesn't take away from the veracity of the stories that are being relayed. Right. But I just want to. Mean, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I mean, I'm agreeing with you. I think that. There was so much that was given in this book, yet so little that was given in this book as far as direction or or what was as far as information that was available to you. You knew it was in Louisiana, um, but you didn't know where in Louisiana. There is a clue. There is a clue. Yeah, they, there's little clues. They, they refer to people as Arcadians. And not everyone in Louisiana is an Arcadian. And I wish I had Phoebe Hayes on this show because she's like one of, she's one of my mentors in terms of Louisiana genealogy. Arcadia is a specific part. So it, kind of, it really does narrow down the part of Louisiana that they're in. Okay. But okay. They, don't, they don't give, they don't say things like Bayou Teshi or, you know, Bayou whatever, or, you know, the name of the St. Mary's Parish or where they are. Okay. Okay. See, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, 
but the book itself and just let me let me be clear to everyone because i'm noticing they're asking to pin the book title and things like that um the book itself can be found on our on our page called uh, genealogyadventures.net if you go to our reading room and you want to follow along in different areas you can go to our reading room and the book is right there that way you can follow along if you haven't read it now i'm, I'm gonna be honest with y'all we told y'all back in october <laughs> about reading the book and it's okay if you haven't but we told y'all about it in, in october and a couple of reminders. and a couple of reminders about reading the book but go to the reading room it is free for you yeah it's no charge it is free and we want you to follow along and because it is an awesome book and we want you to read it and yeah, we want you to see it actually hmm? for those people who haven't read it but listen to to this kind of live book club conversation come back to this video and, and leave comments because what i'm hoping yes. is once you're kind of listening to this conversation you're gonna it's going to sink into your subconscious, especially when we get into the genealogical bit. Yes. And I want to know if that actually gives people some insights about how they can research uh, specifically family members who were sold to the Deep South. Yes, yes, yes. Because it, it, it is definitely, trust me when I tell you this is a must-read book. It is a must-read. And, and it is free for you. It is free for you on our page. Again, genealogyadventures.net, look in our reading room, follow along with us right now. Mm -hmm. And the and reading room read. is a link right there in the main the main menu section. Yes. So that way everybody knows where we are and you can read along. Mm -hmm. It is a must read book, but right now follow along with us. So we're going to give you page numbers. We're going to let you know where we are because we're that good. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we kind of like to prepare for our shows call call us crazy call but us we, crazy but we come for that so um but well, yeah I just, I just wanted to get that kind of housekeeping stuff out of the way in the beginning because i know i know we are going to get clapped back on social media and on youtube specifically around that well how can you how, how do you know if this is all true so i, I just wanted to get that out of the way so oh, yeah, Brian cares about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> just because I, I just get crazy comments and I have better things to do with my day than to respond to craziness. But, you know, it's part and parcel of our job and, and what we do as broadcasters. So it is what it is. But yeah, Brian, on, I don't care. Yeah, um. <laughs> but on to the interesting stuff, the genealogical issues. So one of the genealogical issues specifically about researching enslaved people and even more specifically families that were broken apart and sold all over into the deep south. So, you know, we're talking Alabama, Mississippi, but in this case, we're talking about Louisiana. It, you know, there's so many instances of the people that Octavia was speaking to or people like Charlotte was relaying where we're hearing stories of people who were born in either a different state or a different county. They were born somewhere else and they already had a wife, well, not necessarily, they had a spouse and they had children. So whether it was a wife or a husband and either they were sold into this part of Louisiana or they were inherited by a daughter or a son who married and moved to, and Louisiana. Moved to Louisiana, right? leaving their 
first spouse and kids behind and then being either being made to take a second spouse or just having a second spouse and then having a whole second family. Right. So it, that got me to thinking about some of the our 1870 censuses in, in our own Edgefield family, for instance, where there's only a single, there's only a, the head of the house is a female on her own with kids. You never see them with a man, but you know, obviously there was a man involved because he had kids. You know, the kids, right. you know, it wasn't the immaculate conception kind of deal right. going on here. Um, and it, you know, it really starts making you think, well, where was the father of these kids? Were they sold? Did they die? Were they enslaved on the same plantation or farm, or were they, you know, were they living somewhere nearby? Because it's not unusual for us in that 1870 census to see a woman on her own with kids, you know. And we knew that they were enslaved, because you know, free women of the color is is a, is, a, is a different kind of an issue. So, kind of getting people to think about, kind of recognizing that, or or even thinking about where that spouse went, or again on page 107. We have, and that's Stephen Jordan's story. We have a young enslaved, uh, we have an enslaver who had um, enslaved people who had spouses and kids on neighboring plantations. He decided for whatever reason, he did not want his enslaved people leave, leaving his property. They had, they had to stay there. So he thought he was being kind of generous going out buying a whole load of enslaved men and women to pair up with his, um, the enslaved people on his property. So you can imagine the enslaved people felt a kind of way. They're like, well, I already have a wife. I already have a husband. Mm -hmm. They were over there. You know, the husband, you know, while, you know, the, the men were saying, well, my wife and kids are like a mile and a half down the road. You're, mm -hmm. telling, me I, you're telling me I can't see him anymore. And the, the, the enslaver's like, well, yeah, sorry. Here, here's your new wife. Get busy, make, you know, make more babies. You know, and that raises some issues. So if a father is then prevented from seeing children that he already had, and then he's fathering a whole second family, what happens two generations down the line after emancipation, where everyone is now in the same county and same community and don't even realize that they're related, not only related to each other, but closely related to each other. This siblings you could end up yeah i mean i don't even want to go siblings. there but it's possible or at the very you know or at the very least the first you know you end up marrying your first cousin and you have no idea that the person that you married was your first cousin so you know um these are the kind of issues that dna testing for instance kind of reveals <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, he says, okay, so on page 107, he says, well, boys, I've gotten a fine set of girls for you, and I'm going to put you all together. Likewise, you girls, I've got these fine boys, and I'm going to put you all together so that there will be no reason for any of you to have to have for of you to have wives and husbands off the place. That old practice has got to stop. So then he gave each one his wife or husband. He chose them out himself. So didn't matter if you had somebody in an, on another slave plantation or what have you. The, one of the things that I noticed as far as this book was concerned was in Louisiana, um, they really didn't give a big. 
Thanks. Thank you, because I was so, and I know Janice is laughing right now, because she was like, say it, don't you say it. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I didn't say it, but I'm telling you, I they, they just really just didn't care about these people and and what they had and, and where they, what just didn't care who they, who they were leaving behind or, or what they had. And, um, but you didn't even get a choice. Out of yeah. The, you, there was bought. no choice in Louisiana. Like, but like I said, he may have bought 25 people. Half may have been men, half may have been women. You didn't even say, well, I, you know, can I get to know her a little bit better? He told you who you were going to be paired up with. Yeah, these, I mean, this, in this book, I'm not even going to say in Louisiana as a whole, in this book, these slave masters, they didn't give up. Woo, what did what Tony Grant say? A hoot nor holler. They did, they did not care what anybody thought, what anybody cared about. You were going to do what they wanted you to do, and that was that. And um, I found that to be amazing as far uh, as, as that was concerned. Like, he was like, okay, I'm going to go on out and I'm going to fix this whole situation because I'm tired of my people leaving out and not coming back or leaving out or coming back late or what have you. I'm going to fix this whole thing. It it, mm-hmm. it it just literally blows my mind to to think that you can make that kind of demand on someone, and um, the book. Mm, I, it, <laughs> the person who was relaying the story to Octavia, because she, I can't remember how she asked the question that she asked him, but his response was the woman that he was paired with was old enough to be his mother. So yeah, he she just asked him. She said, Did he give you one to Uncle Steven? Because she gave each person in here the respect, whether they were older than her or not, by calling them aunt or uncle. And so she asked him, Did you give did he give you one to Uncle Steven? And he responded, Why, yes, child, he gave me mine too. What did you say? He said, well, what could I say but take her and go along? But I tell you, child, there was great sorrow on the place that day. Many of us had wives or husbands on neighboring plantations. I myself had my wife on another plantation. The woman my master gave me had a husband on another plantation. Everything was mixed up. My other wife had two children for me, but the woman master gave me had no children. We were put in the same cabin, but both of us cried. Me for my old wife, she for her old husband. It, it, it was amazing. They lived together as son and mother. Mm-hmm. It's just, it was amazing. It was amazing. So that would be a genealogical conundrum there. And on page <laughs> 123 is about Uncle Cephas. And this was a horrific story about how his family got completely split apart. I can't, I think his story started in Virginia. His mother ended up going to Alabama. His brother, uh, Jerry, ends up going to North Carolina. His sister gets bought by a slave trader who ends up selling her all the way down in Florida. 
Cephas goes from Virginia to Tennessee, then from Tennessee down to Louisiana. That's one family. And this is what we're and this is what we're seeing. This is what we're seeing in our DNA results. Mm -hmm. Bonnie and I and our research, you know, our research family and our research group, we deal with this all day, every day. Our immediate ancestors stayed in Edgefield, South Carolina, but their extended family members were being taken down south. And, you know, however, you know, hundred and something odd years later, people are getting in touch with us going, well, oh, I see that we're, you know, I, we're related, but I don't, you know, I'm all the way down in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, I, you know, Arkansas, Missouri. I don't see how we're related. It's like, and we just look at the names. It's like, yeah, honey, it's, it's going to be Edgefield in one it's way. Or form. Yeah. And it's so funny because the group, and I know a lot of you tend to um, ask for admittance into and into our calling all branches group. But the thing is the calling all branches group is set up specifically for people who have um, connections to the Edgefield line. And everybody in that group, some way, somehow, is related to each other. And we've actually found, in one way or another, a connection, whether it's through family by marriage or family by blood. Because in one way, shape, or form, even those by marriage, somewhere down the line, end up being related by blood. So if, if you're getting turned down, and not being in that group it's because it's not a group that's just one that you could just join it's not a regular genealogy group it's actually a family group so um everybody can't get into that group so i know that some people try to join it but the thing is is that we have a group of like 1700 people in that group and everybody is related and when i say they are from everywhere they are from every where in that group they're from everywhere all Literally. Four corners of the United States. yes all four corners of the of the united states and it's amazing to me and it goes right back now when we're talking about uncle cephas and and what he's doing and where his families were all spread out and and even thinking about the you know what brian was just talking about the families that that had the children and then you end up having children with this other wife or whatever the case may be and you come back and and you end up being related my two-time great-grandmother had nine kids that i don't know where all of them are from i don't know where all, they all are but i know they exist i know i have dna that i have no idea where they come from and and it's because of that fact that one of the somebody from that line is coming from one of those could be coming from one of those children and that's what that's what all of that is about mm -hmm. so when you look at some when you read a book like this it gives you the idea of oh so that's how this happens because that person went over there and this person went over there and this person went over there you start to understand why my family got so separated why that's what this book does it gives you a clarity of why our how our families got split up, how our families got separated, how our families got just, just went the other direction. And it's just <laughs> after instance after instance. And I'm going to say, and I should have written the page number down, and I'm sorry that I didn't. 
but it's a story that Charlotte was telling. So it's going to be somewhere in that first chapter of the book. She's speaking about a woman called Nellie Johnson. Um, again, another woman who was born in Virginia, brought down into Louisiana. On the journey down to Louisiana, this is the one of the most horrific examples out of this book that I could that I could come up with. She had an infant, the slave trader that was bringing her from Virginia to Louisiana. I guess he got fed up. I guess she was slowing it. The baby was slowing them down. He just gave the baby to some random white woman. Here, you have the baby. You have it like it was a kitten or a puppy. You take it. And he just brought her, brought Nellie down to um down to Louisiana. So you didn't he say that, in the book that she was slowing that the baby was slowing uh, Nellie down? Uh, he didn't. I'm I'm just presuming that that's probably why he he did. I could have sworn that's what he said. Oh, you know what? He could have. I think he did say that because I, I think he was like, "Well, Nellie, you know the baby is in the way, or or something to that." He yeah, he was like, "You might as well just get the baby away." Mm -hmm. It was to the presumption or something like that. It was heartbreaking. So in terms of black genealogy of enslaved ancestors, to me, this is the worst case scenario. It is an infant. What did he? What did that man? What did the slave trader tell the woman that he gave the baby to? Because you know he didn't say where it came from, who his mother was. So right, because she was half white. Nellie was half white. Yeah. So now you have a baby, and let's say that the baby grew up to adulthood, and then we don't even know if it was a, a, a boy or a girl. Say that it grew up to adulthood, got married, and had kids. Oh, mom, dad, where do you come? Who are your people? Where did you come from? I don't know. Wouldn't know his name, wouldn't know his people, wouldn't know who he was connected to or where he came, he or she came from. So for me, that that is like the worst case scenario. And I don't even know how what information they would put in a census return. Right. The 1870 census, where were you born? I don't know. Right. And if the baby looked, looked, if the baby looked like he could pass for white and they gave him, I mean, it's the reason why they gave the baby to a white woman. First of all, let's. Just well, I didn't clear. even. I didn't even think about this. That's right. That, let's be clear. Yes. Let's be clear. That's the reason why they gave the baby to a white woman, because more than likely the baby looked white. So let's just let's understand this. The baby was just passed for white. So now that the baby was now passed for white, this baby has now crossed over. She's never seeing her child again. And that's that. Mm -hmm. And this baby, not only she's never seen her child again, this child knows nothing of its history, knows nothing about the fact that they are actually Black. And, th and these things filter down to now, where you have Black people saying to people like Kamala, who is a mix, her history is mixed, or Obama, his history is mixed black and white. And people come back and say, oh, he's not all the way black. Or he's not this. You, you understand what I'm saying? It, it drops. These are the things that drop down into what's going on today and, and, and not claiming your, your heritage because of one parent is this and one parent is that or somebody not knowing what... It's, it's, it's just a mess. I, I, it's, yeah, it's just or a mess. Or I guess the, the extension of that, the extension of that would be if the baby actually could, looked white and was reared as a, as a white person, they may not, never have known that they had any 
African ancestry at all. And so right. you get to the modern age, and then someone takes a DNA test, so it's like, oh my God, where did this three to five percent sub-Saharan African come from? Exactly. And those are the things that are going on today, like we saw on one of those shows where a woman found out all these years she didn't even know that she was that she actually she was more than 3.5% black. She was a lot black. Her mother went and her mother went through. I mean, she did a lot. She covered her hands in gloves. She went through a lot. Her mother knew she was black, but she kept her. They kept it to themselves. And she found out she was, she was, she she knew, she knew that her dad, her grandfather, I think she knew, what was it? I think it was her father who was white and her mother was black raped, but she was able to pass. And um, her husband didn't know that she was actually a black woman because her father had raped her mother or whatever happened. But this was this was on like the Today Show, the beginning of the year of last year, 2020. And it's a whole book out about it. And um, she found out that she's like 25% African. <laughs> she ended up finding out, but she continued to carry the, the lighter skin because then her mother turned around and married a white man and, and all this other stuff and everything. And she didn't know, she said, but she always wondered why when her mother went out even in the summertime, she would cover her hands with gloves and she would be completely clothed and long sleeves. And she would never, ever expose her skin to the sun, walk with an umbrella. She would never, ever do any of those things. Never. And she, she found that out. So that was kind of my last example of a genealogical conundrum. That, that was probably the worst out of any of them. And for something like that, you, you would have to have DNA. And probably if, if it was a continuous line of males, you would have, probably also have to get a Y DNA, um, y DNA test to figure out what your, your paternal kind of haplogroup group and possibly your identity was. Um, and because Deborah Singleton said they told Nellie they could not take care of a baby on the road, so they gave the child to the white woman. Right. That's what it was. Thank you. Yes, yes. So I don't know if you guys have any questions at this at this point about kind of uh, or observations about genealogical hurdles and obstacles that you can even recognize in your own genealogical research. Well, Charles Holman made a comment. He said, I found a DNA match in the last two weeks whose DNA and the paper trail show was part of my ancestors' enslaved family in South Carolina, but my DNA match's ancestor was taken by the slaveholder's brother to Mississippi. My match had no idea that his ancestor had family in South Carolina from whom his ancestor was separated. So that's Cephas. That's Uncle Cephas. That's Uncle Cephas. Yeah. And actually one of my genealogy clients, again, her ancestry, the original, well, oldest part of her enslaved ancestry is Virginia, Mississippi, going into North Carolina, North Carolina into Madison County, Mississippi, um, and Rankin County, Mississippi. And that's that's been quite a journey for me to do that kind of research. And it's definitely been a been a journey for her too. Yeah, we got a lot of people in here that's definitely dealing with the Uncle Cephas thing. Um, 
Tony Grant says, if Preston Brooks is my eighth cousin three times removed, can I join the group you mentioned? Yes, Tony, you can. <laughs> <laughs> and you're you're my cousin too. <laughs> yes, you can. Um, Teresa Scott, she's dealing with that. She says she's in Virginia trying to figure out matches in Michigan and they're connected to her Louisiana side. Honey, your Louisiana side is something else. <laughs> That's all I, if they anything like this book, your Louisiana is something else. And then um, Jay Spears, he says, this is our current mission to allow DNA to put all of our pieces back together again, as much as it can be done. We have to do this. But here's, the, now here's my question. DNA can do this. But if we have people who don't want to let that happen, how do we do this? Now, y'all know I have a, a beef with Ancestry, for those that know me. I got a straight beef with Ancestry. I just do. Um, and uh, They're not making it easy to be able to solve these kind yeah. of genetic genealogy problems. Yeah. They've actually added a barrier that didn't even need to be there. Yeah. I mean, when, I, when I say what John and I are talking about is the recentish change in ancestry.com, ancestry DNA's matching algorithm where they've raised it to some ridiculous level from from what it was previously. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, it made me so it made me so angry that I kind of I only was just cleaning my tree. I wasn't even doing any more research. But thank you to Yolanda. She has made me look at some other stuff. So I'm back to looking at more research again. So I can't, I can't thank my Yolanda enough for that. But so yeah. at time, so that's kind of the genealogy side of it. And then we wanted to have a kind of quick talk about the the kind of social and social justice side of side of the book because it resonates with today. I swear to you, this stuff. Resonate resonates with what's happening even up to 2021, the year that the year that we're in now. I can't find that thing about how the Ku Klux Klan tried to steal the steal the steal the electoral votes. If you could try to find that for me, I don't I don't know what page that was. I thought on. it was 138. I thought it was 138 too. Um, while you're looking for that, I wanted to have a, just a quick talk about punishments. The punishments. Can we talk you, about Charlotte? Hmm? Can we talk about Charlotte? What did you want to talk about? Because I didn't realize what, that it's 444 already. God dang. Can we, can we get on Charlotte real quick? You know, I, I, that's my heart. Mm -hmm. And how Charlotte told the story of, the, of, of drinking and, and, and how she predicted the future. Because Charlotte predicted the future, guys. I, I just want y'all to know. This book, the book itself was written and um, the book itself was rich, rich. Like I said, the book, we all know that the book itself was, was done in pieces. And then after the book, the book was done in pieces and when Octavia died, her husband and her daughter published the book in her honor in 1890. And she met, she started out talking to this one particular enslaved woman named ex-enslaved woman named Charlotte Brooks. Now I was taken by Charlotte because I just swear up and down that Charlotte is related to my Martha. 
I just swear she is. I, I, I don't know. And to Tony, I think that she's related to us through Preston. I just do. Um, and I was taken by her. And she just says so much intelligent stuff in this book that it's, re it's ridiculous. Um, I think that Charlotte, for a woman who's never learned how to read, she knew her ABCs, she could spell certain words, she said that in the book, but the intelligence that this woman exudes in this book is ridiculous, and that she just, she ended up, the first, what, eight chapters in this book, the discussion is all on Charlotte. So there was one um, thing that really stuck out with me about Charlotte when she talked about alcohol. And basically, she told Charlotte, they were talking about uh, whiskey. And I want to get that. I want to read that real quick. So you go ahead and talk about what you was talking about. Okay. So what, the other thing that really resonated with me, and when I say this, I'm keeping people like Rodney King, George Floyd, um, and Eric Garner very much in mind how they've met their kind of their deaths that there was no form of punishment no matter how depraved no matter how barbaric was off the table you could do anything to these people and there were no and there were zero repercussions so people were getting hung by their thumbnails and then their mistress somehow conveniently forgot that she had hung her female enslaved person by their thumbs in a barn so the girl died um, needless to say that there was a falling out between the, man, the husband and the wife and slaver over that one. But yeah, she's like, oh yeah, I forgot. I forgot that she was there. Uh, someone else got hung. Another girl got hung by her thumbs, but she thankfully didn't die. So, and then you have slave patrols, again, in this part of Louisiana that's being related in, the, in these stories, that just went around looking for trouble. They, you know, they, if you didn't have your papers on you, just giving your mouse or your mistress giving you permission to be off the plantation. They'd whip you, they'd beat you. There are stories in the book about people nearly being beaten to death. But some of the most bizarre ones is again, going back to Nellie Johnson, the woman from Virginia. She was a, she was a runaway. She was a habitual runaway. People, it was speculated in the book that perhaps, I think it was Charlotte who speculated that she was trying to get back to the child that got left to, left with the white lady. So what they decided to do to her, some of these punishments make sense, some of them don't. They put reindeer horns on her head with bells on them. So Donya just explained to me before we went live, well, that's just to make her visible and then the bells are gonna make noise. So if she tries to run, she can't. But the most bizarre one was they made her wear men's pants for a year. Now she's described in the book as being incredibly beautiful. So maybe they thought making her, making her wear men's clothes would make her look less attractive. And you know, apparently making her wear men's clothes and then making her work in the fields. But just that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the punishments that were meted out to these people. And again, those are the points I had to put the book down. And then there's, what was his name again? The man who got George old George, who got whipped to the point where one of his eyeballs popped out of his head. I got it. It's right here. Mm -hmm. She said, 
Aunt Charlotte, did did you did your slaves know what brought on this last war? Yes, child. We heard people say the Yankees were fighting to free us. But my child, it was death for us poor darkies to talk about freedom. We had a man on our place named George. Master didn't like, did not like much, nor how did not like him much, no how. And one day he overheard George talking about freedom. And I tell you, he had killed him that day. He beat George a while and then would, would make the driver beat him a while. They say they give George 900 lashes and then made him wash all over in salt water. While he was whipping him, he put out one eye, one of George's eye. 900 lashes and then washed him with salt water and his eye popped out. This is when I put the book down. Mm. That was the one time that I put the book down. So there were there were several different punishments, like Brian was saying, because then there was the one um, for for Miss Ella, because Miss Ella, she said, I want to tell you about poor Ella, old mistress's house servant. She was only 12 years old. Ella's mother didn't live with her. Mistress had no more feelings for her than she had for a cat. She used to beat her and pull her ears till they were sore. She would crack her on the head with a key or anything she could get her hands on till blood would ooze out of the poor child's head. Mistress's mother gave Ella to her when Ella got to be about 18. Mistress got jealous of her old her and old master. She used to put she used to punish Ella all sorts of ways. Sometimes she tied her up by her thumbs. Her thumbs. She could do nothing to please mistress. She had been in the habit of tying Ella up, but one day she tied her up and left her. And when she went back, she found Ella dead. She told old master she did not intend to kill her, that she only wanted to punish her. Mistress and master did not live good after she killed Ella for a long time. She hung that baby by her thumbs, y'all. She was 18 years old, and that child died hanging by her thumbs. Now, when you read the book, the conditions these people were living in were so horrific that quite a few of them preferred they would escape into the woods. One of them, what was it? He was old, old Joe. Old Joe. He was the snakes, the watermark rattlesnakes. rattlesnakes were so used to him being in the woods because he would live in the woods for months at a time. The hounds would be looking for him. The men would be looking for him. And he just kept dodging them. Yeah, he would lay. He would sleep on the ground. He would make a pillow out of moss, and the snakes would actually go underneath, and they wouldn't. He made a bed them. out of moss. He made an entire bed out of moss. Think about and it. The... You are yeah. sleeping in the woods, hard to get food and feed yourself, and you prefer that was preferable to being on the plantation. That. But let's preferable. let's get deeper. But let's talk about how he escaped the dogs. He greased his feet. With rabbit grease. He feet, he greased his feet with rabbit grease. That's how he got away. They could never catch him. They could never catch him because he greased his feet with rabbit grease. So basically, let's talk about what rabbit grease is, y'all. It's blood. 
Pretty it's much. the blood of rabbit grease that he put on the bottom of his feet so the dogs would catch the scent of a rabbit before he ca they catch the scent of him. So they'd be chasing a rabbit around before they start chasing him around. You know, I think that would be camouflage it because they would be trained to find, to sniff his scent. Right. They're trying to find him and all they're smelling is rabbit. And, like, and oh, all they're smelling is rabbit. Exactly. That's it. That's what the, that's what they're doing. And he made a bed of moss. And 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 the, the rattlesnakes got so used to him that they would go out, they would go do their thing, but then they would come back and get right up underneath his bed and they would sleep there. And he got so comfortable with the rattlesnakes to the point where he was more comfortable with them being there that he felt like they was protecting him. Yep. They were protecting him. When I tell you guys that this book right here, this, this book is a must-read book. This book is a must-read book. It is, it's not a game. So I'm on the whiskey thing. So you're going to do the whiskey thing, and then I'm going to wrap up on page 138 about the politics. So you found it. It is 138. It is 138. That's what I thought. So um, Aunt Charlotte and and uh, Miss Miss Albert, Miss Miss Victoria, Miss Octavia, Octavia Victoria, that's her name. They were one day um, Aunt Charlotte and they were talking, and they were talking about church and religion and and whiskey. So I'm gonna I'm read this. This is chapter eight. And basically, she says, Aunt Charlotte, which church are you a member of? I'm a member of the Methodist Church. I'm gonna go further than that. Uh, she says, how could any Christian man believe it was right to sell and buy us poor colored people just like we were sheep? Uh, Charlotte responds, I tell you, I've seen black people in slave time drove along maybe 100 in a drove, just like hogs to be sold. Sometimes men were sold from their wives and mothers, from their children. I saw white man and men in Virginia sell his own child. He had a by a colored man colored woman there. They say American men never would take care of his child. No, I don't want to read that. She said, Aunt, Char Aunt Charlotte, education and religion taught them better. She said, yes, child, for when I first got religion, I did, did not want to hurt an aunt. Everything was love, joy, and peace with me. I sometimes think my people don't pray like they used to in slavery. You know, when any child of God gets troubled, that's the time to try their faith. Since freedom, it seems my people don't trust in the Lord as they used to. Sin is growing bold and religion is growing cold. That's what our minister sometimes says. Then they go further. First of all, that's a deep thing. I, I, I don't care what religion you deal with. That in itself is something very deep to me to come out and say something like that. Now you free and you ain't you ain't worried about nothing, regardless of what religion you, you follow. Those are things that she was saying. Then she started talking about, they started talking about um, the liquor. And she said, about a year ago, I went out to a plantation near this town and I saw 200 liquor barrels emptied and laying around on the place. All the planters keep whiskey for the laborers and they spend more money for drink than they do for anything else. They don't get much for their work. No way. And I can't see how the hired men can drink so much whiskey. 
on Charlotte, how much are the men paid per per day? They get only 50 and 60 cents a day. Some of the men have wife and four or five children to take care of. They have their wife to help them, but law me, the wife's help is next to nothing in the field. The women can't get as much as the men, no way, although they can, they go out and work hard all day long and keep up with the men too. I can't see, Aunt Charlotte, how any man who has four or five children can afford to drink when he makes only 50 and 60 cents per day. Well, I tell you how they do it. And then she goes on to tell them and basically explains to them, explains that if you're going to go and drink the way that you drink, this is what they're going. Basically, she, she talks about the fact that there's going to be a liquor store on every single corner but how she explained that she did that is every plantation had its plantation store they would go into the store to buy the whiskey not buy the whiskey it was like a chip it was like they, a chip yes a chip they'd get the whiskey and at the end of the year when they settled up if they could settle up then it was all good if they couldn't settle up then they were in debt and they, had they were in debt they had that's right kind of a thing Sorry, that's right I, I am really looking at the time was there anything else that you want no you you we started late you said that's why i was trying to finish up so you can get your um thing in we started late you got five minutes okay so yes because um i mean it's true they're, they're just you know in, in certain neighborhoods there are liquor stores just just everywhere and she like i said part of the, the other part of the reason why johnny and i are so keen about this book is there are just parts of it that you can take from 1890 and you can slap 2020, 2021 on them. Right smack in the middle. That's a perfect example. And I, what I'm about to read to you, you think the 2020 election, think 2021, Georgia, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all of those contested states that, that specifically the county with majority black and brown residents, Buckle up, buttercups, because this is 1990. <laughs> Why, madam, you ought to have been down here, meaning Louisiana, in 1868. That was the year in which Grant and Colfax ran for president and vice presidents against Seymour and Blair. A perfect reign of terror existed all over the South, and the colored people who attempted to vote were shot down like dogs everywhere. Essex Harrison, those two riots in Edgefield, South Carolina. Relevance there. And the colored people who uh, shot down everywhere, there was such a reign of terrorism. That's the word they used. There was such a reign of terrorism in many states of the South that the Congress of the United States refused to count the bloody electoral votes of several of the Southern states. That was Georgia. 2020. And so, 2021. There was a phone, there was a phone call 2021. Yeah. So on that note, the book is called The House of Bondage <laughs> by Miss Octavia V. Rogers. Albert. Octavia V. Rogers Albert. Get it. It is awesome. It is free, it's free to download, and it's also very inexpensively priced on all you know things like um, Amazon, all you know book book retailers. 
It's like seven dollars on there, you guys. This is this is a if you want to have it in your hand. And um you have it on your on your tablet. Yeah, it's free on our page. We definitely uh think you should get it. Next week we are talking to Mr. Edward Edward Ball about slaves in the family. Um, this is definitely gonna be a good book. Definitely going to be a good conversation. Uh, not a book. This is not a book club. Brian, do you want to talk about the next book club book? Um, actually, if you guys give us your feedback um, in the comments section, because I do have a book in mind. It's about the the Weeping Time people, the Butler family on Sopolo and Butler Islands in Georgia. Um, it's written by letters written by a woman called um, Fanny Kemble, who married um, Pierce. Miss Butler. Um, so if you, if you get really good positive, uh, get really good feedback, if you guys are really interested in, in having another one of these, um, right. I'll, more, we'll schedule that one and we'll post more information. But again, that that too will be a free book to download. Right. Um, so, and well, then one other thing that we want to do before we leave, get ready, get set. Black History Month is coming. Um, Women's History Month is coming. We tend to veer a little from genealogy and focus on that. Um, and technically, we've kind of already started because Black History Month is so small and so short. We somewhat have already started. But we have a lineup that will just knock your socks off. So, for you. Yes. And I want you guys to definitely go look at our lineup. Look at the schedule. Save the dates. It is an awesome, awesome lineup. And again, really easy to find. Just go to the Genealogy Adventures Facebook page. We'll see the events tab. We have event. We have show episodes booked in there, going all the way into May. May, May into May. Yes, we are. We will be out for April. Just to let you guys know, we will be out for April. We need a much needed break. So, um, but as uh, from starting technically now, but as of February, we have heroes unknown heroes in february and un and un unknown people that made martin luther king people like martin luther king malcolm x all of those people that you talk about all the time we're giving you why they why you talked about and we're talking to those unknown living legends you guys must follow those shows so okay i'm danya i'm brian enjoy the rest of your sunday yes See you soon.